And so this new series is called The Almost, as you've seen. And we named this series um, to, to remind us that when we see the miracles of Jesus, we are looking into the world that we are almost living in. It's the idea of what was before the fall and what will be after the fall. And through the miracles of Jesus that we will look at in both the New Testament and some in the Old Testament, what we see is this this kind of hints and allegations of what the world could have been like, of what our lives could have been like, about how the power of God could have been expressed in the world. And through some mistakes of our own, we don't necessarily live that. We live in this liminal space, right? The space in between um, what was and what will be. And this is expressed most powerfully, I believe, through the expression of miracles that we see in the biblical narrative. But we need to own something. We need to own that our relationship with miracles is complicated. Some of us swear by them. Some of us say miracles happen, they happen to me, I know it, nobody can convince me otherwise. Some swear that they never happen and that the people who believe in them are completely deluded. Some people think that they did happen, but they no longer happen anymore. They're kind of secessionists in that regard, and it's not something that God still continually works on. And it, it's this, miracles have been kind of a boon to the atheist conversation with religious people. Um, you know, there's many believing scientists who just kind of don't want to don't want to have to deal with miracles and don't want to talk about it, that sort of thing. Um, but we need to ask what this series is trying to do, because I think this is fair. We want to create kind of a level learning field here. I want people to know what to expect. So the question is this: Are we trying to make you believe in miracles through this series? And the answer to that is actually no. I want you to understand that. And that may seem strange, right? Why wouldn't that be our purpose? But there's a few things about miracles that we should probably understand. The first thing is this. Miracles have a tendency not to confirm faith. We want them to. We want a miracle because if we just got a miracle, then our faith would never, we would never question our faith. We would never question God. We would know that he is real. We would know that he is who he says he is. And we want our, our faith to be confirmed through miracles, affirmed through miracles, and made out of concrete because of miracles. But the truth is, that never really happened. When you think about it, think about the children of Israel. A pillar of smile, uh, smile? <laughs> my brain is working faster than my physical body will allow me to move today. I apologize. Pillar of smoke, I believe that's called, and a pillar of fire, manna every single day, and still they made an idol to a golden calf. Right? So miracles don't necessarily confirm faith. Right? Faith, in fact, by its very definition, is filled with spaces and gaps. I mean, a lot of us think that our, our faith needs proof, right? But I guess I would ask the question, then, is it faith at all? Our faith is sometimes confirmed, but it is rarely proven. Because what faith is, as Martin Luther said, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So miracles do not confirm faith, but the opposite of that is true as well. Faith does not confirm miracles either. Just because you believe in them doesn't make them true or untrue, right? If miracles happen and they really happen, whether you believe in them or not, it's kind of irrelevant to the idea and expression of a miracle in the world as it was back in the Old Testament, New Testament, and even through today. So both of those things are true. So I guess the question is why bother? Right? Which is a reasonable question. Why bother talking about them? They don't confirm faith, nor does faith confirm them to be true. But we engage in them for a few reasons. 
The first reason being that they are in the biblical narrative. They are in Scripture, so we have to deal with them somehow. How do we deal with them? There's a few ways that we've tried to deal with them. And I understand I've gotten a little crazy with like my 1A, like my outline in the sermon's a little deep, so stay with me. Because this is one. They are in the biblical narrative. So how do we deal with them? Right? One, do we dismiss them? Or sorry, A, do we dismiss them? Do we dismiss them? Those biblical authors, we think, either conspired to have us believe something that was untrue or they thought that what they experienced was true. So a lot of people do that. A lot of people read scripture and go, man, those miracles were nice. They were just misguided people who didn't understand science. They didn't really understand what was happening. So let's just forget them. We'll just pretend like they didn't happen. And they're nice, quaint stories of a very simple people, but we're not gonna worry about them now. So that's one way we can deal with them. Second way we can deal with them, do we just accept them? Right? Let's, you know, and this is easier for those of us in faith, but that creates some problems when we're dealing with those who say religious people are not as intelligent. And by the way, that said, I'm going to cough real quick. Let me turn this off. Sorry. It's back on. Did I turn it back on? Check, check. Sorry. Um, Sorry, we're just going to have to fight through this together. Okay, so do we just accept them? Um, um, There's a study that was done a few years ago. It was an online study. 63,000 people responded, having to do with IQ, having to do with people of faith, people of no faith, logic and reason versus belief in miracles and that type of thing. And by and large in that poll, it came out that people who believed in miracles and believed in, really believed in a God, had a tendency to be a little bit less intelligent, at least according to this poll. I know you, you guys are like, nah. hey man, wrong audience. Um, yeah, I understand that. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. But sometimes just blind acceptance without any kind of conversation does have a tendency to make us think or make people think that we have a blind belief that we're not, we're not looking for, you know, using faith or using reason and logic and that sort of thing as well. Um, but I think there's a third thing that we need to think about when it comes to miracles, which is um, do we seek to understand their purpose? Right? Let's say they didn't happen at all, or if they did happen and they're all true, there's something that transcends either one of those understandings, and that is the understanding of their purpose. Right? What can we learn about God, not about us, but about God through this idea of miracles? So that's one A, B, and C. Are you with me? Okay. Number two, this. um, They show us who God is. That's one of the things about miracles is that they show us who God is. John calls them signs in his book. They point to God's power, his character, and purpose. They also speak of the almost what life might have been like and what might be like as well. And that's the thing about miracles. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and if you believe that they happen today, miracles tell us something about God. But have you noticed a lot of people who believe in miracles have a tendency to become very narcissistic about the miracles that happen to them? God saved me, therefore I must have some real purpose in the world, right? Am I wrong? I think, I think that's the way a lot of people think. Now, that, that creates a whole different kind of conversation, and we won't necessarily go into that. But miracles are not about you. Miracles about God. Even if God were to heal you, miracles aren't about you, Right? Because the moment you say, I mean, we got to deal with some problems that we have with miracles. One which would be, if God saves you and not the person next to you, 
Does that mean you're better than the person next to you or God loves you more than the person next to you? No, this reveals God. This doesn't reveal you. That's important for us to think about. We'll delve into that later. We're going to do like eight weeks on miracles. So we'll spend some more time on that later. So they show us who God is. They show us God's power, his character, and his purpose as well. Um, they, they show us the specific aspects of God, his power, absolute, and beyond anything else in the universe. His character, which is always good and always loving, and his purpose to expose us to not only the character and, per, and power of God, but to remind us that there might be things that, uh, that, we, that we don't know. There might be things out there and there might be a world out there that we don't 100% understand. The fourth thing we have to do with miracles is recognize this. The disciples, apostles, they believe they happened. They believe they happened to the point where they would not renounce them or recant them even if it sent them to the grave. These are people who believe that what happened actually happened. These early proponents of the faith recognized that something specifically that they couldn't explain had happened, and so they didn't try to explain it. They simply reported it. And so then the question is, well, does that even have veracity? Like, does that have any truth to it? The way I answer that question to somebody who says, well, can I even believe in Scripture is, hey, taste and see. Spend some time in Scripture and see if it's something that the Holy Spirit begins to move in your heart. I'm not going to convince you into believing Scripture. Only God can do that. But, but the people who wrote Scripture believe that these things happen. So let's start with a natural miracle or a nature miracle. There's really two types of miracles that we see in Scripture. One is natural, where God steps in and does something with the natural world. The other one is a physical miracle or a healing miracle, where Jesus heals something that is happening in someone's body or, or in their psyche. So we're going to start with a miracle that you're really comfortable with. I thought I'd ease you into this as much as possible. This is... This is this is a fun one. It comes for, to us in Mark 4, 35 through 41. And it begins like this, reading from the New Living Translation. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. Jesus had had a long day preaching and healing, and he needed some rest and he needed some sleep. Preaching and teaching is an emotionally draining thing. How many of you are teachers here? How many of you teach? You know at the end of the day, you're done right? You're exhausted. You're tired of those kids. You love them, but you hate them. Um, and they feel the same way about you. So it's all good. Like we all agree, like we need to get away from each other. That's why when the bell rings, they leave and you leave too as quickly as possible. It's exhausting. Preaching, teaching is exhausting. I preach three times a week here. And I got to say my Saturday afternoons, if I stop moving, like I go eat. And then I, if I stop moving, I'm asleep. It's as simple as that. I have to keep moving through the rest of the day or else that's it, I'm asleep. And I often, that wins often. Because it's kind of emotionally draining. Jesus was tired, he had been healing, he had been preaching. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind. Although some boats followed, it says in Mark 4, 36. Why did some boats follow? Because he would have been in a boat, he would have been preaching, he would have been a little bit away from the shore because that sound hitting the, the ocean, or hitting the sea actually, would have um, amplified a little bit to go up the hill a little bit so he could hear. When he was done, they kind of went away. But people wanted to be with Jesus. That's one of the problems Jesus had is that everybody wanted to be around him. And we all have people like that in our lives, right? People that we know, that we love, that when they show up, you're like so excited that they're there. You just want to be with them. He would probably hate me for saying this, but I find that to be true of Sam Lenore. Right? You listen to Sam, you're like, oh, he and I are best friends. You've never met him, but you're best friends now because you heard him preach. And I've often been walking through rooms where he gets stopped and stopped and stopped and stopped and stopped. Nobody ever talks to me. Um, but... <laughs> 
but Sam's one of those guys, right? Jesus apparently was one of those guys. Um, they just wanted to be with him. People just wanted to be with him. But as you know, the story goes like this. But soon, a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Now, squalls were known to happen on Galilee, which is not a huge lake. It's 64 square miles. So it's not tiny, but it's not huge. But it's big enough and shaped in a way that it can have its own micro weather systems, its own microclimate. And so, squalls would happen to, um, would happen to come up. And, and, you know, we were in one of those boats this summer, and it's not a huge boat. If there's a big enough wave, you're going to feel a little concerned about, about your safety. And this is what was going on with the disciples while this was happening. Now we have a little bit of a shift in the language. It says Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. This is Jonah language, if you remember the story of Jonah and the whale. This is very, very like Jonah. Now we're not saying that Jonah is particularly a model for this story, but some of the implications are the same. The idea that Jonah was very deep in the boat, very far away, and it's the same language used for Jesus. We think that it probably can be interpreted at, as he was in a deep sleep. And if, you know, if there was a storm and he's asleep, he must have been in a pretty deep sleep. But, but the, the author used language that emphasized how deep the sleep actually was, how far away he actually was. The disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Right? They woke up Jonah so that he would pray to God to save them. They woke up Jesus to save them. So there's a qualitative difference between those two stories already. But when Jesus woke up, and this is fascinating the way this is written. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence be still. The word for rebuke is actually muzzle. He muzzled the wind. He stood up and he said, silence be still. Some of your translations say peace, be still. But the, there's a few things that, that get me with this particular piece. The first one is this. He didn't seem to have any trouble telling the wind and the waves to stop. I, I don't know how many of you watch like um, not science fiction, like fantasy type stuff. And when anytime somebody uses power, it's like, you know, they're like, ah, and stand, they get exhausted and they're tired. Or like if it's Stranger Things, you got to get a bloody nose if you use some sort of power or something like that. Not that I've seen it. I have no idea what it's talking about. Um, I watched it. I'll just tell you the truth. Anyway, um, there always seems to be this like draining of power, right? When somebody, even a powerful whatever is like, eh, and then they're tired. Um, not Jesus. Jesus stands up and just goes, I don't, would you, could you not? I'm sleeping. And the wind and the waves are like, oh, didn't recognize you there. Sorry. Like, whoosh. great calm, right? Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. So it wasn't just like, it seems that it wasn't just like, oh, the wind stopped. And it was like, Oh, he stood up and was like, stop it, and it stopped. And then he turns around and he asks them, and he looks at them and he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And he seemed to be genuinely confused by this. He was genuinely confused by their inability to see him for who he really is. And this is a problem that many of us have. Right? We want Jesus to conform to what we want, to what we think, to our preconceived notions of who he's supposed to be. We see what he really is, and we have a hard time accepting it 
because it's usually so much more than we have allowed him to be in our own lives. We're not ready to accept it. We're not ready to understand it. Do we still have no faith, Jesus asked. After everything that you've seen, do you still have a problem believing who I am? Now, you've got to remember, they had been with him while he was healing people. I mean, it seems, again, if you had seen somebody get healed, right? A leper walks up to you and Jesus goes, no, I don't think so. And he's no longer a leper. Or someone is blind and Jesus says, no, don't be blind anymore. And he's no longer blind, the lame. It seems like that miracle would confirm your faith, right? But what did they say? To, what did Jesus say? Do you still have no faith? Miracles don't confirm faith. Only Jesus can do that. You know what happens after this? I love the way the New Living Translation says that the disciples were absolutely terrified, right? Just, just out of their minds. Like, they literally looked at each other and like, who is this guy? They've been hanging out with him for quite a while. Who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves obey him? It's like, it's like they had never thought that he had that much power. What they thought is that he was pretty good at healing, but they never had an idea. Have you ever known somebody who's just really good at something and then they like, all right, I'm gonna tell you a story. <laughs> all right, um, this, was back, this was back in seminary and we, were, um, we ran this, this Sabbath school called Blue Rocks. I don't know why we called it Blue Rock. I have no idea, but um, called Blue Rock Sabbath School. It got a little traction, got a little popular. And we used to do this thing where we do hidden talents, where we would just pull somebody up and be like, hey, can you do this? And so we were going to make fun of our friend who, um, who many of you probably know, Pastor Roy Ice, um, who's now the, he's now the, the speaker for Faith for Today. That's pretty exciting. He's going to probably transform that ministry in powerful ways. Anyway, um, so we were like, dude, this is going to be hilarious. What we're going to do is we're going to get an accordion. And we're going to just like pull him up on the stage and be like, here, man, play the accordion. Um, so we did. And he goes, oh, now if you handed me an accordion, I'd be like, hey. He's like, oh, okay. And like straps it on like he knows something. And we're all. Because <laughs> I don't even know how those things work. He like straps it on. And he's like. And he starts playing hymns. Beautiful hymns. Well, as beautiful as they're going to get on the accordion. Um, and there's somebody in this audience who's like, I can't believe he said that about accordions. I like, they're weird sounding, all right? They sound like circus stuff, even. He starts playing this accordion, and he's like, I don't know if he's a virtuoso on an accordion, because I don't know what that sounds like, but he's better than anyone I'd have ever heard. And he's like, <laughs> Turns out, when he grew up, he grew up in a relatively, um, a, a, a relatively poor family, and so he didn't have, they, they couldn't have a piano. So his mom got him an accordion, and he learned how to play all these hymns on an accordion. And to this day, I'm assuming he still knows how to do it. But... This is what's happened. We all stood in the back of that Sabbath school like, did you know he could play an accordion? That's amazing. We, but it's not really, but it's cool. Like when somebody has a talent that you had no idea about and it like blows your mind, like, whoa, I had no idea. You cook too. Wow, that's amazing. You know, when your surgeon sits down and plays piano, you're like, wow, you can do more than one thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know why your surgeon would do that during surgery. I'm assuming that's not when they were doing it, but 
you know, you don't think that somebody, and this is what the disciples were going, they were looking at each other like, who is this guy? And I don't think it was like, who does this guy think he is? I don't think that's the translation. I think it's, who is this guy? Did you know he could do that? Look what he can do. And Jesus looks at them like, what did you, where did you think the other healing came from? You thought that was just like parlor tricks and this is the real thing? No, it's all that. But you see, they had to, have a, they had to figure out what their response is going to be. And we all have to figure out what our response is going to be when we really recognize who Jesus really is. We have, we have two ways to respond. One way is faith and one way is fear. And perhaps these are the choices that many of us have to choose when it comes to Jesus as well. And I'll tell you what, most people choose fear. And let me explain to you why. Perhaps we choose fear because faith is a loss of control, right? Fear moves us towards more control every single time. If you get micromanaged, it's because somebody is fearful that you can't do your job. It's not because they have faith in you. There's never been a time where somebody says, I really think you can do this. Let me get in there and do it for you. That's not how that works, right? But, but, but faith, fear always moves towards more control. I mean, think about it, even re resolutions, right? We fear the way we become, so we're going to try and get more control over our lives. We're going to get more control over the things that we do, our behavior patterns and those sorts of things. Fear is always moving towards more control. And at this moment, the disciples realized they didn't have any control at all. And they realized that Jesus had it all. And that was a big moment for them. And I'll tell you what, if, if you're somebody who lives in fear, you're trying to control everyone around you and you're trying to control every single thing. I'll tell you, a good exercise in faith for me has been traveling. Because you get on that plane and you're strapped in and they say, okay, we've closed the door, turn off your phones. And I mean, you turn off your phone later, but you know. Um, but when we're about to take off, I, I, I say this prayer and I always say it. I'm like, Lord, thank you for everything that you've given me. My life is in your hands and in the hands of that pilot. Um, <laughs> but in your hands, ultimately, do with me what you will, but thank you for everything you've given me. It is a moment where I have to submit and release control and have faith. And that's easy for me. It's easy now for me. But this morning, I dropped my daughter off at Ontario to go back up to Walla Walla. I know Terry did too. Um, and um, as she left, the only thing I could think of is I could drive her up. It'd be, I don't want her to go on that plane. I don't know that pilot. I don't know what he was doing last night or she. I have no idea. I don't, I don't, were they drinking? Were they, did they not sleep well? Do they have irritable bowel syndrome? I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> My mind goes to weird places. It was like 4.30 in the morning. Um, but I'm like, what, what, like what? Maybe I would rather be in control of this. I could drive. I could just take her. I'd drive up. We'd be on the five right now. I could just, I could just FaceTime the sermon in. It's the five. It's not like I got to turn. Right, just do the sermon as I'm driving. It'd be fine, like because I was fearful because my daughter's leaving and I don't have control. Fear always moves us towards control. But here's the funny thing: faith it drives away fear, right? And you have to give yourselves over to it. Like faith is kind of an all-in sort of situation. We can't hold something back just in case. We have to move into the scary place of release if we're to experience the breakthroughs in our lives with God. 
And I see we do that with our spiritual lives as well. We try to control our spiritual lives and control our patterns and control all these things. And spiritual disciplines are good. Praise God for them. Prayer, study, um, um, service, all these types of things, fasting, all those things are really important. But they do not mean that you now control your spiritual life and your spiritual breakthroughs. Only God can give you that. And so... If you're somebody probably like me who, who likes to be in control of everything that you can have, that you can't be in control of, well, you've got to realize that that's never going to give you the breakthroughs in your spiritual life that you really want because faith drives breakthroughs as well. Now, as we finish off, I want to just go back to one thing that I mentioned. Remember I mentioned the study about how people of faith have a tendency to be seen as less intelligent? Are we less intelligent to believe in miracles? I, I suppose that depends on how you define intelligence, right? The studies show that people of faith, the second thing that the study shows is that people who rely on faith have a tendency to have more intuition and a better sense of intuition of what should be done. Now, that got really interesting to me as I was reading the study. Because I get it, reason, logic, that's important. You can't get rid of that. But people of faith have a tendency to rely on intuition a little bit more. Now, the study didn't say that any one outcome was better than the other. And if you're a person of faith, that intuition, you believe that that comes from God. You believe that that's the Holy Spirit continuing to move in your life and giving you wisdom when you might not have had wisdom, giving you understanding when you might not have had understanding, helping you to realize certain things when you might not have realized those certain things before. If you ask me, that's a miracle that people of faith lean into. And, and, and we live lives that are at, at times perhaps a bit different than those who just live on reason and logic. And by the way, reason and logic, I think that's important too. Like, let's not just throw that out. But people of faith have a tendency to rely on intuition that is God-given. And when we rely on that intuition, when we learn to listen to that voice, when we learn to listen to what God is really doing in our lives, and we learn to follow it and obey it and have faith in it, man, that's when life gets really interesting. That's when life gets really, really fascinating. But the one thing we got to remember is that miracles are not about us. They're about God. We can become very narcissistic in the way that we look at miracles in our lives, and that's not what we're gonna do in this series. In this series, what we're gonna do is we're gonna continually look for who God is and the miracles that happen. What we see in this particular story is that God is way more powerful than anyone expected. So powerful, in fact, that the disciples realized they didn't really even know him at all. But it changed their trajectory. It changed their lives. So we're always gonna ask this question, what do miracles tell us about God, about his character, and about the almost? Because can you imagine living in a world where that kind of power was that accessible? When God needed to do something, he just did it, and he moved the winds and the waves in your life. And the truth is, we're always going into a storm. We're always in the midst of a storm. We're always leaving a storm. There's always gonna be storms in our lives. But when we recognize that this is a little hint of what life could be like, of Jesus changing those trajectories in our life. Man, that's when things get interesting. So I'm excited for this series. I'm sorry that we don't have the printed materials out. They'll be out next week and you can grab them, but you can go to the website and download the PDF to follow along. We've got a study guide for every single day of this series. 
I'm just excited to be on this journey and excited for 2020 and what God will do. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, just want to thank you again. Jesus, thank you for being the God who you are and changing our trajectory. Lord, may we see miracles. Um, and may we see you in them. It's the most important thing. In your name I pray. Amen.